Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the show. Now, Kazakhstan is in turmoil after protests uh, when, have swept the country and have been met by a violent crackdown by the regime. Now, this is a country which was often portrayed by certain elements as a success story in the region, despite the nature of the dictatorship. Let's just have a little look at some of the footage which we've seen come out of the country as the crackdown against the protest has escalated. Now, impoverished living standards in the country have long fueled discontent. The average monthly salary there is less than £450 um, each month. And the government announced the phasing out of subsidies for petrol, the doubling of cost sparked these initial demonstrations. Now, as the journalist Peter Leonard has written in The Guardian, it's a country afflicted by huge internal inequalities, with the west of the country contributing a huge amount to the nation's wealth, but resentful at the lack of investment in basic infrastructure. But the protests against these spiraling costs turned quickly into protests against the regime in general, targeting in terms of the slogans, the former president Nazarbayev, who formally stood down in 2019, but is believed to wield power behind the scenes. Now, we can see and hear these violent scenes taking place in the country, but the regime has shut down the internet um, and has shut out journalists. So we don't have reliable information coming out of the country. We do know that the president, Tokayev, is portraying the protesters and terrorists, uh, uh, sorry, the protesters as terrorists um, and issuing blood-curdling statements such as, we must destroy them, this will be done soon. Shoot to kill orders have been given, shoot to kill without warning, while Russian troops have been deployed at the request of the regime. Now, the regime is claiming order has been restored, but as we as we know, we don't actually have a reliable picture coming out of the country, given they've shut down the internet and they kicked out journalists. Now, we've got a short show today to talk to a brilliant expert who's going to explain exactly what's happening, because I know most people watching or listening will not know much about Kazakhstan. Many may struggle to identify it on a map. But this is important. It's important we talk about issues uh, in different nations which aren't properly discussed in the Western media, not least when we see huge discontent where people are organising over very huge, very substantial economic and social grievances against often brutal regimes. And this is a regime, 
it should be noted by the way which has had uh we know it's called in putin's uh regime in order to prop it up but our former prime minister tony blair has worked as an advisor for this regime he's received millions of pounds from the kazakh regime and scandalously years ago advised the kazakh president after 15 civilians were shot dead by the regime uh so here's the matter i mean we know tony blair has worked for various regimes including the saudi dictatorship again his foundations have received millions of pounds from that particularly uh, that particular blood-curdling uh, regime which decapitates gay men uh, dissidents brutally brutalizes women and is subjecting yemen uh, to a horrific onslaught which has reduced it to the worst humanitarian situation on, on earth but we can see here's another regime that he has been up to his neck in uh, in supporting uh, and receiving millions of pounds to give PR advice uh, after the regime massacred innocent striking uh, workers and demonstrators. Uh, but we want to talk about this in the co- in, in terms of you know a, a a country whose people have been all too often airbrushed out of this discussion such as it is we haven't heard the voices of people from kazakhstan enough in the coverage so that's what we're going to talk about uh, t- today we're going to address that balance as ever do support us on patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 to keep the show on the road uh, i am in barcelona writing my book but we will be doing far more um in february onwards but we've got lots of shows throughout the the month and interviews and we've got documentaries from February onwards, so do support us. You can put questions to our brilliant guests using Super Chat. I will read out everyone at the end. Do click on the YouTube link, sorry, I forgot to say, um, and press like and subscribe, uh, and also download us on the podcast. Okay, that's quite enough for me. I'm going to bring in a brilliant um, voice, uh, an expert, a uh, someone, of course, from Kazakhstan itself, Dr. Diana Kudabagadur. I can't say your name, Dan. We went through this in the introduction. You said, don't even try. Just say Dr. Diana. I got it right when I spoke to you before we came on air. And I've messed it up. Um, so that's a, a sign of my own incompetence. But Dr. Diana, it's great to have you. How are you doing? Thank you. It's Dr. Diana Kudaybirgenova. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a huge honor. Now, as I've said, most people watching or listening don't know anything about Kazakhstan. Very, very little information indeed. So can you just explain what is the nature of the regime which is in charge in Kazakhstan? Well, yeah, it's very, um, we, we, we try to find all sorts of, you know, uh, words to describe it because it's a very institutionalized regime, but it's definitely what's coming out right now. And we used to call it non-democratic, especially in my own writings. But what's coming out right now in terms of the picture, what we're seeing, it's a very authoritarian regime. And what I mean by institutionalized is that uh, it does have a lot of sort of, you know, legal and procedural and formal institutions that are keeping it in place, which is very important. And a lot of the things that President Tokai spoke about in his speeches since the beginning, that the, uh, since the beginning when protests broke out on on second of January, was all about like you know let's keep it in the legal field, uh, which he meant that that basically unsanctioned rallies are illegal in Kazakhstan because the law doesn't allow it. So I think it's it's very interesting to look at and very important to understand that the regime itself is very complex, but it is authoritarian. Um, and then the protest itself is also very complex. So the 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 let's put let's put it like that the relation between the protesters and the regime 
um, are very much happening in this complexity of institutional authoritarianism, but also in the fact that people are simply tired of this type of uh, dictatorship that where they don't have any voice or any space to channel the, the grievances. That's why the protests became that space where they could do it. In terms of the human rights situation in Kazakhstan, what are the kind of rights and freedoms that are have, are lacking. I mean, we've seen presidential elections in which, of course, the successful candidate wins about 97% of the vote, which is mm-hmm. the sort of result you'd expect under a dictatorship, which is clearly not having a free and fair election. So just explain in broad brush terms, the human rights situation and, you know, how the ruling party, uh, which has ruled obviously for, for so long when challenged, how it maintains its power formally. Yeah, I think it's very important to note that uh, most freedoms uh, are restricted in Kazakhstan, of course, as I said already, um, people do not have the right for peaceful rallies, which is actually guaranteed by constitution, but there's a specific law that um, sanctions it and you have to literally ask for permission from your local administration to to have a rally. And that's what a lot of sort of peaceful activists and political activists were, uh, you know, protesting against uh, in the past few years. So the protest is not unexpected in that sense in Kazakhstan. Another issue is that we don't really have enough um, independent and free media. Uh, that's why the the voices, you know, uh, the, the, the alternative voices went all online. And Kazakhstan is one of the most digitally connected nation. We have so much, you know, uh, information spread across different messengers telegram channels are hugely popular our instagram is highly political um and in that but 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 we don't have this kind of like you know formalized or institutionalized free media in kazakhstan apart from maybe one of one or two voices of uh independent journals like the village or that that are kind of like you know trying to portray the situation right now but unfortunately that's that's also a big gap and another thing that that should be mentioned of course is that there is a huge harassment of political dissent. Um, it is mostly tackled in, in terms of like, you know, it's, it's very much localized. Um, they, the, the, there are political prisons that are, the dissent is, is hugely crushed. Uh, the oppositional political parties do not have access to be registered and formalized in order to run in the elections. Elections are obviously mostly staged and, uh, and are uncontested. And that's a huge problem as well that caused the wave of political protests that I've been studying since 2019 when the president um, sort of um, resigned. So that's what I mean that authoritarianism is very institutionalized. It uses very formal um, institutions like elections, like media, like party system, because we have the, a lot of different parties, but the old pro regime. And it basically uses this type of like, you know, layout of what, you know, a democratic system would look like, but it uses it for its own purposes in order to st- stabilize and um, monopolize the, the whole public sphere for its own use. And unfortunately, that's what's happening. And I, I should mention that, I know we have very little time, but I should mention that one of the long-term political prisons prisoners in Kazakhstan was released um, a few months ago, I think in September, and then he died. Uh, he spent 14 years in prison, Aron Atabek, and then he died uh, soon after his release because he was, yeah, I mean, he, he looked like a, like a human skeleton and um and it's it's very important that that you know there were these political protests peaceful protests um after his death by a lot of youth movements um and like you know his daughter now who's now in her in her 20s is also part of that political um sort of a peaceful political movement called uh Oyan Kazakhstan which is wake up Kazakhstan so you see the problem here I guess for me as a political sociologist is very interesting is that the regime formalizes and monopolizes so many of these institutions that the opposition when it forms or any sorts of like you know dissent when it forms um completely remains deinstitutionalized and doesn't have access to 
to formal institutions, to formal channels for grievances. That's why we're seeing this spontaneous, sporadic uh, protest that then is hijacked basically by, by a lot of violent groups that are also highly informal. In terms of discontent before this, I mean, I mentioned years ago the, a massacre of um, protesters, which unfortunately, as I said, our prime minister offered PR advice to the Kazakh re regime over. Mm -hmm. So what, what, where has the opposition tended to go before this? Is there an organized uh, mm -hmm. opposition? I mean, I know there's an oligarch who has tried to position himself. Mm -hmm. um, and Abelioyov, uh, no, sorry, Abelioyov. And yeah, um, And I know that he is not at all uh, a legitimate opposition figure so where where is tell me about him and why he's trying to position himself as mm -hmm. such and where's the where's the opposition gone where's the what you know have there been a coherent opposition movement before this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to, to know that there were sort of like, you know, oppositional movements in Kazakhstan uh, since the 1998, I would say. That's when the first prime minister, uh, well, first sort of opposition emerged. It was the former prime minister, Akhijan Kajigeldin, who stood against Nazarbayev. Uh, but that protest, I mean, like it was still highly marginalized and then he left the country. I think he lives in exile, he's in Brussels or in London right now. And then uh, in 2001, there was another wave um, that was larger. There were a number of political sort of um, key figures within Nazarbayev's regime who uh, resigned and formed, they were technocrats largely, and they formed this new movement for democratic uh, choice of Kazakhstan, it was called, and Ablazov was actually part of that movement in 2001. But what's important about this formal, well, uh, formally formalized opposition was that it always came from the regime. These were former ministers, advisors, bankers, oligarchs, all very close to Nazarbayev himself at some point. And then, at you know, when, just, when they decided that the game was no longer uh, working in their interest, they decided to, to form uh, an opposition to the regime to basically replace the Nazarbayev, but, but remain, in my opinion, remain building similar, you know, structures of the regime because they came from it. So that's what I call the, the um, regime type opposition. What we're seeing with, with current protests is that it's non-regime. It, the people who are protesting on the street never had any connections to, to the regime properly. They were never in key positions. So that's very, very important to clearly uh, distinguish that. So, but with this democratic choice of Kazakhstan, they were, you know, they were uh, on the ground for maybe a couple of years. They, they, were, they enjoyed some popularity among people because there was already discontent in, 2000s, in, the, in the early 2000s. But um, it, it, the movement disintegrated. Different people were uh, imprisoned, Ablazov including. Uh, different people decided to take, you know, different tropes. And, the, and essentially there was a lot of internal competition within that sort of like, you know, regime uh, type um, opposition itself. They formed the party Agrol in 2005, then that party sort of got, you know, uh, divided and then there was the true Agrol and just Agrol. Uh, we have still Agrol in, 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 the, in the parliament, which is basically a completely pro-regime party right now uh, with completely different people. Then we had sort of like the social democratic party um, that, that existed up until 2019, but also completely discredited itself because people don't know who are these leaders, whether they have still any connections with the, with the president, with Nazarbayev, whether they have the connections to the presidential administration and so on and so forth. There are a lot of discrediting rumors and, and things coming out of that. And also, I mean, like if you have the leader of the of the oppositional party was a former prosecutor general. I mean, like, how can people trust somebody who was so close to Nazarbayev himself, who plead, uh, like, you know, who plead to Nazarbayev, who was loyal to him, and all of a sudden decided to turn around? So, of course, that formalized opposition existed for a period of time, but it completely discredited itself. And Ablazov himself, of course, I mean, again, he's an oligarch. He's somebody who did enjoy uh, a lot of privileges and access to specific funds. 
uh, when he was under the president Nazarbayev, then when he was released from his prison, he still had access to the to the bank. And and what what is really important about this story that the people need to see, sort of not in black and white, but actually in between the lines, is that this person managed to um, you know again gain his um, a lot of his fortunes under this uh, authoritarian regime and he became an oligarch it's, it's very very important to, to note that as well and what's important for me in my research because i did interview a lot of uh, peaceful protesters before is that uh, whenever there was a protest he would come out and he lives abroad and he would come out online and he would claim that he organized it and a lot of these activists who i spoke to they say that you know for them it's very much delegitimizing the, the, the protest because they don't agree with his agenda. They don't agree with, with what he's saying and they actually don't agree with his figure because for them, he's precisely this person who comes from the regime. So how can he fight that regime? So I, I think it's very, very important to like, you know, to look into these lines and not discredit certain people who, you know, don't want to be associated with him, who don't want to, um, and, and who definitely, it's very also dangerous uh, for them inside Kazakhstan to be associated with him. So I think he should stop um, playing that uh, on that agenda because as soon as activists are arrested, the first question the police ask them whether they are connected to him or not. And it's a very painful thing, you know, um, to be associated with that when you're actually protesting against against him and, uh, and against the agenda that, 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 that he's proposing. So I think it's very, very important not to discredit um, the protest movements by associating with his name. Now, as we know, the regime is strangling information coming out of the country uh, by shutting down the internet. Uh, people can't get in touch by telephone. Journalists mm-hmm. being kept out. What's your sense of, you know, how much support the protests have within broader society? Um, but also, what do you think in terms of the regime now are, are claiming that they've essentially suppressed the protest, that that order mm-hmm. of 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 under a dictatorship obviously has been restored so what do you think how how widespread do you think the sympathy is amongst the general population mm-hmm. and do you think these protests have been successfully suppressed quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Well, I think um, we we need to take that situation with with the huge understanding that there's a lot of uncertainty on the ground right now. And that's the first caveat. And another caveat is that uh, we need to distinguish where were the peaceful protesters and then when they were hijacked by these violent groups. And I think a lot of things that, because, for example, I'm getting a lot of, you know, threads and, and, and very much annoying things on, on, on my social media right now from people who are completely disoriented 
and they don't believe that the protest was peaceful. So that's why I think it's very, very important to look into that complexity. So from the 2nd of January, people in Janaozhen, where, where the first protest broke out in 2011, where, where there were the, the, the civilians killed. So people in Janaozhen started protesting peacefully against the, the rise of, of fuel prices. But soon after that, they started like you know coming up with these political reforms um, claims, and they and they asked for 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 the government to be sacked, and they wanted like you know basically more democratization, and they actually also what's very important want to be able to elect their own governors, which are currently appointed by the president directly. And what is also very important is that the regime was um, going and 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 established a dialogue with these protesters, and protests immediately spread uh, across the whole Mangistau uh, region. Which is um, again uh, in Western Kazakhstan, which is a very industrial and uh, sort of like oil oil rich region uh, for Kazakhstan. Um, and there was a committee established, <clears throat> the governmental committee that came there. Uh, regional governors were talking to the protesters. Everything was very very peaceful. There was a dialogue on the ground that was happening uh, between the second, third, and fourth. On the fourth, different people started coming out in cities, in biggest cities like um, Shumkent, uh, Nur Sultan, the capital, and Almaty. And in Almaty, we have uh, again a different group of protesters. These are not sort of like you know labor unions or anything like that. These are like political activists, uh, social movements like Oyan Kazakhstan, like Jambul of Mamai's movements and so on and so forth. And but these are again unregistered, non-formalized, but but definitely movements that exist and who have their own uh, support group. They started coming out on the streets, and there were um, there were clashes with the police. Although protests, these protesters were very uh, peaceful. They never, I mean, they, they've been protesting for two years, for more than two years. They never set things on fire. They never fight with the police. They're very peaceful. They just come with the posters, and and they usually are getting harassed by the police, and that's what's well, well documented. So let's not forget that story. And there were clashes between them and the police. A lot of activists were arrested, beaten up, which is also very important to remember. They were kept overnight. And then in, on the morning um, of, of fifth, uh, I think it was Tuesday, uh, that's when the violence broke out because there were all sorts of different groups coming in. The looters who were just like, you know, seeking opportunity, people coming in from outside Almaty, from rural areas, which is also very important. And then this very much organized criminal uh, groups that started they had arms, they had guns, and they started attacking different buildings, and they started attacking and targeting law enforcement police, but also civilians. So that's very, very important that these violent groups need to completely be separated from the peaceful protesters who were there on, on legitimate claims. And unfortunately, what's being painted right now in all this like, you know, uncertainty that, that has emerged is that all of it is basically convoluted. And uh, the police harassment of, of uh, initial peaceful protests is convoluted with what happened with, with the with the armed clashes with these criminal groups that do need to be uh, I, I mean that do need to be detained and, and, and properly investigated where they came from, who organized them, you know, who gave them guns, why the army left the city, why there was so much, you know, um, basically like, you know, paralysis of, of security forces on the ground in the first days when, when, when violence broke out in Almaty. All of that needs to be thoroughly investigated. But I think with, with, with the uncertainty that is currently established in Kazakhstan, people only have access, most of the people only have access to the state TV, whatever state TV tells them they believe. Um, and I think, and of course, people are very, very, very much scared because there are like, you know, explosions on the street. I'm, I'm finishing. Um, and, and, it's, and that's what I'm seeing is that there's a lot of panic and most people want to paint these protesters as only violent groups, which is very, very wrong. Because again, we need to see into the complexity of things. If you want to only take Almaty, there were at least four groups involved in what happened and peaceful protesters were not involved in clashes with the police. And I think that's something that needs to be highly, highly, uh, you know, 
sort of demarcated and 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 uh, um, and investigated further. Chip, apologies I coughed there. It was actually because this microphone isn't currently working properly, so I'm speaking through my computer, but that's okay. Just just a couple of final things. Some are arguing, and I can see this by various uh, Russia-backed sources, perhaps, but also I can see it in the comments. People who are arguing this is actually Western interference. The opposition within the country is being backed by the West. It's a so-called colour revolution to install a... Uh, a a anti-Russian government in Kazakhstan. What 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 do you say to that whole narrative? Because I keep reading it. So what what's your thoughts? There is a lot of like you know conspiracy theories on the ground as per usual. This this is like you know this is one of the processes for any post-Soviet uh, you know um, revolutions or conflicts. I don't want to call it revolution just yet because I think uh, if, if it, it's a failed coup first of all, um, and it's like you know we should we should identify it, especially what happened in Almaty is a failed coup, um, which. Unfortunately, some of the elite groups, and this is precisely a domestic thing, some of the elite groups decided that, like, you know, infringing and, and inciting violence on, on um, you know, very much local people. And, and I'm also here warning and, and sending my condolences to, to equally to, to civilians and to law enforcement officers because they are Kazakh citizens. And we are, as a country, we're mourning all of them because this is this whole horrible tragedy for us. But I think it's a very much internal conflict. It's a power struggle, what we've seen, especially with these violent groups. Uh, the protesters and claiming that they were backed by somebody. I mean, this was such a spontaneous protest when we, we're talking about peaceful a part of it, which, which basically started off in the beginning. I mean, these people don't have any, you know, we don't have an even proper organization. I think that's something very, very important to note uh, because I've been studying this process for, as I said, for, for several years, is that people are basically, like in, in certain movements, they're basically donating their own money because they don't have any funding. They don't have any, like, you know, organization, formalization. They exist basically through telegram channels, through Signal, where they can, like, you know, this is like whatever uh, the, the space that allows them to remain confidential, Instagram and so on and so forth. Um, these people are not sponsored by anybody. They don't have special budgets. They, um, I spoke to to all young Kazakhstan activists. They they gather in, in somebody's apartments, like you know, and and studios and, and talk about these things. They're completely not funded by any by anybody. Whether they're educated, yes, yeah, sure. Some of them are very well educated. They speak English. They've been abroad and so on and so forth. But it doesn't mean that, like you know, they were, um, I don't know, brainwashed by somebody and so on and so forth. So these conspiracies always re resurface. They never found a proper, like you know, ground or explanation in Ukraine. For example, so far we haven't seen huge reports coming out from from what happened in Ukraine during Maidan, and I've been closely watching that as well in the past. Uh, we haven't seen these, like you know, allegations being proved in any other place. So right now, in this point of uncertainty, people can say whatever they please. But color revolution is not one thing that is applicable to Kazakhstan. It was never organized. Um, yes, the message was, was the same, political reforms, economic reforms, but that's simply because the structure of inequality and the structure of the society that, is, that was just so tired of what's going on in the country in terms of injustices, in terms of poor governance, let's be honest. And, and if we're talking about structural and institutional things, this is just the response to a very poor governance where uh, the uh, 
advisor to the Ministry of Energy basically said, if you don't like the gas prices, why don't you check? Why don't you take public transport? And he said that just before the the you know I think it was on on Tuesday, and that of course angered a lot of people because they they feel that the the regime, the government, is not any more connected to the people and their grievances. So the protest was completely spontaneous. It wasn't organized by specific forces or anything like that. And I think that's something that needs to be again remembered before the clash before the clashes became violent and, and got hijacked by these uh, you know criminal groups who as as I say are clearly representing a specific power struggle and specific inter-regime power struggle. So um, and any external forces um, and and commentators who want to bring it like you know in terms of uh, color revolution or any other old outdated post Cold War uh, frameworks these simply my message to you is that these frameworks no longer work and Kazakhstan is a completely different and a lot more complex case that you're simply trying to simplify and in that sense uh, dismiss uh, the legitimate claims that were there on the ground and, and legitimate problems that the current regime still has to face once the violence is over. Just lastly, just some questions from people who are watching. Uh, Tad Campbell asks how much the firing of ministers loyal to the first president is just a power grab by the current government. Is it credible he fled the country? And David Barata asks how can Western nations help the people of Kazakhstan? And Dave asks what the impact of the rise in fuel prices for the people is. I, I quoted before that the monthly salary is less than 450 quid. So obviously I would imagine quite a big impact. So just quickly on those, just in terms of yeah. the firing of ministers, uh, what yeah. people in the West can do and the impact of the fuel prices on everyday people? So the fuel prices basically, and, and these were the news reports that were coming in from, from people themselves in the beginning when the protests happened, when we all were watching it very closely, is that people simply could not afford, majority of people could not afford it in Mangastau region. And that I think is very important because in other parts of, of the country, people are still using, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, other forms of, of petroleum. And it's, but, but in Mangastau, they simply said that they no longer can afford it. So it's very, very important. Other things, it's not only about fuel. There were other things people cannot afford, basic utilities. So this is a, like, you know, a much wider thing than just uh, gas prices. That, that's, that, that should be put to bed as well. Um, whether the firing of ministers would be helpful, whether it's a power grab, as I said, we exist in this formalized sphere and then this highly sort of like, you know, gray area where nobody has access to what's going on in the regime, what's the decision making and so on and so forth. But certain people can still speculate. I'm not the one who, who I'm not a big fan of speculations or predictions. All I can say is that uh, the, the, the fact that the former head of the security and a very close ally of Nazarbayev Karimasimov is, um, you know, is detained under the allegations of, of treason is a huge thing. And uh, that's obviously something that was voiced by the state television and by the regime itself. Uh, we have to wait for the investigation. We have to wait till like, you know, proper court hearings, uh, whatever these are. Um, and we have to watch them closely in the coming days. It's too early to come up and jump into conclusions and how the Western nations can help uh, by stop spread. And that's not only to Western nations, but just in general to the commentators who have only found out about Kazakhstan like yesterday when when became a huge news. I guess maybe try, you know, try to contextualize a little bit. And, um, and that's on, also not only to Western nations, but also to a lot of commentators outside Kazakhstan who did not know the situation on the ground before. Is that situation is a lot more complex. This is not a color revolution. This is not like, you know, the simple scenario that we've seen before. This is not Libya, e Egypt or anything like that. We do call it uh, locally Kazakh Spring, Kazakh Proktima, but not in connection to Arab Spring, but in connection to Prague Spring, because a lot of activists who were under Kazakh Proktima um, movement 
as a called political field, they were demanding gradual changes and gradual reforms. They didn't want any bloodshed or any, uh, you know, revolutions like that. So I think it's very, very important to look into the context, to look into a little bit of history. These protests are not, you know, spontaneous. Like, they didn't happen overnight. The uh, the level of inequality and grievances have been building up for at least a decade. Please look into what happened in Janowzian in 2011. There are a lot of roots of what is going on right now in that conflict, uh, in that in that sort of riots and 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 clashes with the police when civilians were killed. There were a lot of more um, um, what what did it go? Um, protests in 2014 uh, with the devaluation of local currency that was called Black Tuesday. There were uh, land protests in 2016. And then when the president um, Nazarbayev resigned in 2019, this was the beginning of the Kazakh Spring, sort of the, the call for gradual political reforms and democratization brought by the uh, young movement, to which re re the regime was responding slowly. That's where we see the listening state, so-called, um, some of the you know uh, changes and reforms that, that Tokayev was proposing. But unfortunately, they were not enough. Um, and I think another thing that is also very, very important, and I, and I thank you for mentioning that, is that the hypocrisy that, that, that you know, uh, defines it all, that Tony Blair himself was the advisor to Nazarbayev when all of these protests were happening, especially in 2011. And uh, let's not be, you know, let's not see things in black and white. There's a lot of sort of, you know, Western involvement there as well. And um, like, like Tony Blair, like other big... Um, companies and big interests. And that's also something that shouldn't be escaped. And Kazakhstan shouldn't be considered as like, you know, this, uh, uh, let's let's call it like exotic or strange case. Um, a lot of the things that, that are happening in Kazakhstan are also reflections on a, on, a, on a huge crisis of democracy that is happening elsewhere as well. And I'm sorry for being a bit harsh on that, but, but I think it's something that needs to be mentioned. I think it's extremely important. Very, very important. I'm glad you did mention it. Dr. Diana, that was fantastic. And I think anybody, as I've said, the vast majority, and it's shameful to a large degree, uh, but people weren't aware uh, of what was happening on the ground in Kazakhstan. And you're quite correct. A country like Kazakhstan suddenly appears in, in the headlines. All of a sudden, you get various people who become armchair experts without actually understanding what's happening on the ground. And more importantly, voices like your own aren't elevated in the way they should be, which is why we're so glad that you were able to take part today and give an actual informed view as someone from Kazakhstan who actually understands the broader context, historical, social, economic. So it's been such an honor. And I can read through the comments. People are hugely appreciative of this masterclass you've given. Um, and and I hope, you know, solidarity, of course, with those fighting for a, a genuine in, democratic Kazakhstan and voices like yours will be ever more important, of course, in that struggle. But we really, really appreciate it. That was, that was really, really brilliant stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you Take, for having me. Thank you so much. Take care and uh, speak soon. Bye. Um, brilliant stuff. Really honoured to have such a fantastic guest who can speak so knowledgeably and with such depth and, uh, and in a very accessible way as well for those of us who don't, who should know more about what's been going on in Kazakhstan, not least, as I've said, because the fact that our former prime minister uh, has been paid millions of pounds uh, in order to whitewash the reputation of this regime should make it more of our business th than it already is in terms of supporting the protesters in Kazakhstan. What was pointed out at the time with Tony Blair's advisory role is it, it, gives, it gave an air respectability to the regime that they could say, well, look, we have this esteemed former British Prime Minister who is working with us. So how can we be the brutal, terrible regime that people portray us as? So regardless of what actual advice he's given, 
the fact that he was in any way associated with the regime gave it a kudos and respectability that it simply does not deserve. So it is important that we talk about that. That was a brilliant uh, interview. I've learned a huge amount from that, and I'm sure many of you have as well. Uh, it's a short show today. We will, um, as I've said, I'm here writing my book, which I'm now going to go straight back to. Uh, but we will be doing the show throughout the month. Uh, I think we're going to try and do twice a week. Partly just to keep me company, because I'm on my... You know, I'm not trying to make myself a victim here. I'm obviously in a brilliant, beautiful city with one of the de- most densely populated cities on earth. But I'm, I'm here to write my book, as I've said. Um, but we will do other interviews as well, just to keep things going until February, where we'll be doing things with a bang. Lots of documentaries, interviews, features, and podcasts. Uh, so I'm going to leave you all to it and go straight back to my book. But thank you for that amazing guest. Thank you to everybody uh, for joining us. Uh, and thank you to David, Dave, and Tad. Uh, we will. I will speak to you during the week. Um, but everybody, take care and do keep, as I've said, look out for sources from Kazakh people themselves. That's what we try to do here. I've gone on social media. There's a lot of people in in Britain, the United States, who've become overnight experts on Kazakhstan. I would never presume to be one myself. The whole point of the show is we hand the mic to someone who actually is. Uh, but look out for those sources. Do follow people like Dana on social media, and you will have a far better view of what's going on than most western media sources so do do that uh take care everybody lots of love and i'll see you very soon thanks for listening everyone i hope you found that informative educational uh interesting and i certainly did uh do support us on patreon to keep the show on the road uh, forward slash orange jones 84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and i look forward to speaking to you soon hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.